Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 64th episode from the PJ Archive. It's an interview I did with the American singers, songwriters and musicians Daryl Hall and John Oates, who are the number one selling duo in music history. I met them in London in early 2005 when they were promoting their 17th studio album Our Kind of Soul. For this interview, each of them chose five other artists and albums they considered important to them, starting with Daryl telling me about his background. I was born in, uh, outside of Philadelphia in, in uh, a town called Pottstown, which is about 30 miles northwest of Philadelphia. I live part of the year here in London, I live part of the year in the Bahamas, and I live part of the year in upstate New York, and I live part of the year on the road. Where do you keep your record collection? Well, I, I'm funny with records. I, I have records from my teenage years, that, and they're all in storage. You know, I don't really listen to records that much. I, uh, you know, I, I listen for information, or sometimes if I have a certain project, I'll, I'll review, you know, sort of uh, listen for inspiration for, uh, you know, to, to old records or other people's records even. I mean, uh, contemporary other people's records. But I don't really listen, I don't sit around and listen for pleasure. And I, I don't know if, uh, if a lot of artists are like me. I, I, I sense that probably a lot are. But, I, you know, to me, music is... Uh, I make my own music, you know, and if I want to deal with music, I, it's me at the, at the piano or the guitar, more than sitting down and, and being an audience. I'm a, I'm a lousy audience. And how many CDs do you reckon you've got together, and how much is on vinyl of your collection? Well, that's hard to say, too. I mean, I have a, a ridiculously large vinyl collection that I don't listen to anymore, mm -hmm. that, again, is in, store, in boxes. Uh, and I have a fairly large CD collection, and it's very eclectic. Everything from you, everything, you, every possible kind of music, it's, it's, and some some things I, I just sort of randomly pick things if as needed. How do you think your taste in music compares to John's? Uh, I think we're very similar. I think our, our, one of the things that that keeps us together and uh, is is our uh, parallel growth in in what we like about music and how we relate to music. I think that if you were, I know we have these ten records here, uh, I think that we could equally talk about either one of these, because I, I, you know, we, we have the same favorite ideas, you know, favorite, uh, favorite songs. Has it been hard for you to narrow them down to five? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, this is uh, totally false, to tell you the truth, because I, I mean, I couldn't possibly narrow it down. There's so many, so many songs have in, influenced me in, in so many different ways both small and large uh, over the years that it's it's impossible to pick five in really influential albums you know, you know I, I'm, I'm influenced by Marvin Gaye but I'm also influenced by Lee Andrews and the Hearts who Marvin Gaye was influenced by you know I mean and, and Harvey Fuqua and, and the Moon Glows and, and, and gospel music and church music and country music and bluegrass music I mean it, there's so much in my head that I carry around that it, it's very very hard for me to pick any number of of, of, of bodies of work that I could say these are the ones. Mm. Can we start with your favorite of the five that you've chosen? I tried to pick albums that I thought were the closest thing that I could say to perfection, mm -hmm. you know, uh, um, my version of perfection. If I was picking them in terms of perfection or in, uh, uh, world influence, it would have to be, man, it would have to be a cross between what's going on and Revolver because I think those two albums influenced the world I, th I think the world was a different place 
before and after both of those records were made. So which one do you want to choose first? So which one do I have to pick? Well, since I'm a soul man, I'll pick what's going okay. on. Okay. And that's the only reason I'm picking that one, because, you know, because I'm because i I'm a soul man. So how did you, how and when did you first hear that? I don't even remember when I first heard it. I, probably as soon as it came out. Hmm. But all I know is that you know, I, th I, I thought of Marvin Gaye as being a rather minor player in the Motown spectrum. Uh, I, I was a Temptations person. I knew the Temptations personally. I knew Smokey Robinson personally. Uh, the other Motown guys were sort of more abstract, you know. I mean, Mar I, I, I thought of Marvin as being a guy that sang duets with, with Tammy Terrell or, 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 or sang Stubborn Kind of Fella, which, which I loved. But he wasn't, he wasn't the main man to me. You know, I, I was, uh, again, being a harmony freak, I was born into the Temptations and people like that. But when I heard this album, I heard something that I had never heard before. It, it, uh, he, he, he changed music by, by this record. It was, it was uh, a combination of, 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 of church music, soul music, jazz, lyrical and uh, 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 political relevance. Uh, what else? What else is there? I don't know. That's enough right there. All those things, all in one package. And each song, you can't, you can't. Every song was was equally good. Of course, you know what's going on is is the all-time perfect song ever written, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, you know, if you listen to the whole album, it's all of a piece. It's a, it's a, it, it's certainly musically a conceptual album, and uh, it was uh, it was a, a man who was really reaching out, being and something else that I like about Marvin and and, and uh, uh, identify is that he was a maverick. He was a, a part of the Motown machine, and he was one of the first ones to, to truly, and he had a hard time of it because he was with Barry, Gord, Barry Gordy's sister. He had, he had a hard time stepping out and being his own man, and he had a, he had a buck a machine that was as big a machine as ever was, and, uh, and he did it, and he did it successfully, and they didn't even want to put this record out, and uh, he managed to create history through sheer talent, force, and will. Did you know him at all? I worked with Marvin. I, I did uh, concerts with him. Uh, I didn't. I can't say I knew him personally, but I, I worked with him. And how did you feel when he died? I was. Uh, 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 I won't say I was shocked because uh, everybody knew how crazy he was. But uh, uh, I thought that the world lost one of the great performers and singers and creative geniuses of all time. Talking of creative geniuses, the Beatles. Then I would move to the second one. I don't. I, don't, I think that that this album, and uh, you know, it, uh, I think the world was a different place before and after this album was made, because uh, they. This is when they hit their stride. Uh, when when George Martin's genius and their genius songwriting came together and made a perfect album. And the sounds that the, I mean, nobody had ever done anything like this. Nobody had ever used these kind of sounds, taking uh, expressionism and taking all you know, 20th century music and uh, classical music and doing all these things and putting them with, uh, with with these particular kind of songs. And even the songs themselves were were, were stretching so much. You know, they, they stretched verses and choruses to an in, to another place. But uh, uh, sonically, it was a, a totally groundbreaking. Favorite uh, tracks on there. Tomorrow Never Knows, Taxman. Um, it's hard for me to pick, you know, on these kind of albums, it's hard for me to pick favorite songs because, again, it's, it's, it's sonically and musically conceptual, you know. Uh, I don't like to pick individual songs because it's all of a piece. And I would say that about my own albums, too. I, I hate, to pick, hate to pick pieces out of, of uh, it's like saying I like that blue in that mm. Picasso painting, you know. It, it, it's, a, it, it's, it's all of a piece.
All I can say is that sonically, it, it was uh, a work of pure genius. Okay, number three choice, please. Number three, I would pick an album that influenced John and I to a great extent, and that's the James Brown Live at the Apollo 1962. John and I both started in places like the Apollo. My star was in the Uptown Theater in Philadelphia, and I actually won a talent show with James Brown's band backing me up, so that that was my. I was 17 years old, so that was this was this was my start, literally, in in life, in as far as you know, recording. And I want to. I got a singles deal out of it, and that's and out of that singles deal is me meeting John Oates and working with Gamble and Huff and all that stuff. So the, you know, there's a lot of of, of me in, in this. But what I learned about this record. And what this actually not this record, but what this record represents is is the way a show should be timed. Is the way a show has has a, a, an emotional beginning, middle, and end. It's and again, I grew up in the church singing, and it's gospel, and that, that, that's where this comes from. It's 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 the way to put a show together. You know, you got your opening, you got your, you, you 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 got a certain a high point, and then you have the benediction, you, and the whole thing. It all goes together. It's it's a it's it, it, it's it's very much soul and the church are, are very closely aligned. But when you listen to this record, you really hear it. You hear it in its most raw, real. And perfect way. I mean, this this record, we John and I still use elements of this record in in, in our performance. I don't mean we we play the songs, but mm. we use elements of the emotion mm. in, in in this particular record. So have you discussed it between the two of you and sort of? Yeah, about a thousand times. Well, yeah. But you know, it's one of those things we don't even have to discuss. I heard this record the first time when I was 14 years old, and I played it about. I mean, I wore three copies out. Mm. So this is this is this is baby food to me. <laughs> Okay, excellent. Yeah. Number four, please. Okay, let's see. I'll pick. I'll pick uh, "Young Gifted in Black." "Young Gifted in Black" by Aretha is an, an, another album that I have a connection to, uh, because Arif made this record right before he made the Abandoned Luncheonette. He made it in between the Whole Oats record and the Abandoned Luncheonette record. And I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I, I could be wrong, but I think this was the, rec the project that he was just coming off of before he started mine. There might have been one other in there, I'm not sure. And the same people that played on this record play were a lot of the players that played on our Abandoned Luncheonette record. So there's a lot of connection there. I think this is a... Uh, it's hard for me to say. I, my personal taste, this is Aretha's best record. I'm an outrageous fan of Arif Martin as, a, as an arranger and producer. I think he's one of the, one of the great all-time uh, R&B producers, soul producers, jazz producers, whatever you want to call him. He has a, an amazing ability to pull the best out of an artist and to mix and match. It doesn't even matter what style you're working in. He, he, he understands it and knows how to make, how to pull the best out of you to, to make it sound the best it can be. And uh, I think he made, uh, I think this album is consistent. I think it's, I, I think it's Aretha at her, soul, at her most soulful, but also very sophisticated. It's, um, it's, it's, it's her at the top of her form. Have you met her? Uh, oh yeah, sure. What's she like? She's a bit of an enigma to most people. Yeah, she's. Well, I, yeah, I won't say she's not an enigma. She she keeps to herself. Uh, uh, she's a wry. That's the best word I could use for her. She'll walk past you, go, "Hey, Hall and Oates, how you doing?" And with this like blank face, like, you know. Do you still in awe of her? Uh, in awe of her. I've I've never been in awe of her. Okay. But I but I, I respect her unbelievably. You know. Yeah. I think she's in, she's she's a powerhouse. You know. You put her on the stage. I pity the girl that stands next to her. That's all I got to say. And I've seen her do that too. Right. She does those battles of the divas and all that 
forget about it. No, there's nobody can even. One horse race. Yeah, it's a one horse race, exactly. Your final one? Yeah. Final one is uh, close to home again, it's Philadelphia, it's the Spinners. And uh, it's hard to pick a Spinners record because they're a little less consistent than all these other ones I picked. Uh, although I can't think of any song I, I don't think is great on this record. Uh, one of my favorite songs is called It Takes a Fool to Learn, and it's for some reason it's not on here, but I could swear that it was on this record, but I, I have had a hard time finding that. I, I was going to cut that song for our album, and I couldn't find it anywhere. It's really weird, and I thought it was on this record, but oh, there it is. Love Don't Know Nobody, okay. excuse okay. me. That's one of my favorite all-time songs. Mm -hmm. it takes a fool to learn that Love Don't Love Nobody. Tell us a bit more about the spinners and their kind of... Felipe Wynn is a person who I... My style of singing, I was very influenced by him. I, I think he, I think he sort of changed me. I, I remember listening to this record the first time I heard it. I was in New York City in, in my in my apartment. And I was sitting with a friend, and she said, "You got to check this out." And she and she played me this particular record, and I heard "It Takes a Fool to Learn," and I think that that sort of changed my life. I, it, ever, after that. I started singing differently. I started doing some different things. I won't say I can believe my whole style changed or anything like that, but Felipe Wynn entered, it was like when you say, Jesus entered my heart, and I was, I was a different person after that. Well, Felipe Wynn entered my heart, and it changed the way I sang after that. That's, uh, that's just one of those things. He's, you know, I, he's, uh, he died the way I want to die. He dropped dead of a heart attack at a second encore. Is that right, while he's performing on stage? Uh-huh. Well, actually that? jumped into the audience. Really? Yep, he jumped into the audience and dropped dead. <laughs> now that's called dying with your boots on. Yeah. So did you know him? Uh, yes. Oh. And, he, and again, a really, a really a gentle, sweet guy. You know, and he's, he was a church singer, gospel singer. What but are the rest of them doing now then? They work. They still work. Oh yeah, as, as spinners. Yeah, sure. <laughs> spinners. Yeah. They go out and they, they they there's a whole circuit for for all these groups, the OJs and the spinners and the stylistics, and all those people. They and they play uh, they they play all the time. Can I just ask you, while you're here, um, they're releasing on DVD the We Are The World uh, track from the mid-80s. Uh -huh. What are your memories of recording that? It was an amazing experience because, uh, you know, you always hear that story, leave your egos at the door mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, the, what, the, what, what that really meant was leave your assistants at the door. Right. So, <laughs> no you, one so everybody walked through that door and they were alone. Mm -hmm. Now, if you take a bunch of superstars and put them in a room where they don't have their assistants, mm -hmm. uh, and their entourage, wh whatever, helping them out, it's really funny to see what happens. Mm -hmm. And what happened was everybody turned into eighth grade. Everybody turned into 14 years old and junior high chorus. Because that's the only thing that we all had in mm -hmm. common, is we all probably sang in a chorus mm -hmm. or in church or something like that. And everybody started acting like little kids. Mm -hmm. That's what I felt like. I felt like I was 14 years old in this room with a bunch of other 14-year-olds. That's the best way I could describe it, mm -hmm. the, the experience. People were laughing, there was fun, but they were like, you know, teenage jokes and mm. things like that. And Quincy was sort of like the choir director, you know? <laughs> and everybody, you know, treated Quincy like he was the, I mean, he's, you know, and and uh, everybody was asking each other for their autographs and all that was kind of that stuff. Right? Yeah. Who did you ask for? I, I didn't, I was stupid. I didn't do it. And John did, and he went on eBay and he found out that it's worth like Fifty thousand okay. dollars now. Who would you have asked then? Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen? Uh, not Bruce Springsteen, but I, I would. Uh, if I had asked anybody, yeah, Ray Charles, 
Mm. Uh, Bob Dylan. Uh, who else would I ask? I don't know. I, I, actually, I would have liked to have gotten everybody's autograph. Mm. Everybody that was in that room was a was a cool person. I have oh. to say that. And it was it was really amazing. It mm. was really fun. Did anyone like, ask you for your autograph? That yeah, everybody did. Even Bob Dylan. Uh, no, he wasn't. Of course not. <laughs> Bob was skulking, skulking around in the corners somewhere. <laughs> and um, for Live Aid itself, you perform with Mick Jagger, didn't you? We performed with David Nettie of The Temptations, right. and closed the sh and then then brought Mick and Tina Turner out, and that was mm. how, that was the close of the show. Because mm. you worked with Mick a few times. Yeah, I did. Well, that was around that time. I I, I did that, and then Dave Stewart and me uh, did a, a a song with him. We wrote a song for a movie, and uh, I was kind of hanging out with Mick at that time. We were just sort of doing things together. Have you been out in the pool with him? In a pool with him? No. Have been no. out on the pool? Which oh. Going, oh, on the pool. Yeah, looking uh, Yes, as a matter of fact. Have you? Well, no, yeah, I, let's put it this way. We were we were uh, pulling at the same time. I don't know if we were pulling together. In fact, we were pulling we were pulling apart. We were both pulling the same people. Really? Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit of a problem. But see, in those days, Mick usually won. Mick gets his way, you know? Oh. He's much more persistent than me. <laughs> he's, a, he's a lot older than you, though. Yeah, but and then this is, we're talking, you know, 1982. He, mm. was, he was still full of beans. Are you still mates? Uh, I haven't seen him in a while, but I'm sure if I saw him, we'd be, you know, we used to occasionally get together and have dinner or whatever, but no, we've, we've sort of, I haven't seen him in a while. Are there any young bands today that you'd like to work with, any young artists? I hear a lot of great singers. I don't know. I mean, uh, you never know. Uh, it's one of those things, everybody that I've ever worked with, just about, that I can think of, was sort of happened by chance. Somebody either knowing somebody or calling me up or, or uh, I meet somebody by accident. In, in some at a party or something like that, and they, I don't really sit down and go, mm, I like to work with that person, and mm. then I get together with them. Mm. I, I I don't I can't really think of anybody, you know, mm. but uh, I'm sure there's somebody out there, and I'm sure there will be people that I'll be yeah, working yeah. with. For this, the second part of my interview with the American pop rock duo Daryl Hall and John Oates, it was John's turn to talk me through artists and albums influential to him. But first, I asked for his memory of participating in the USA for Africa single, We Are the World. You got everyone's autograph that day. I do. I have it on, on, on the sheet music. Yeah. Um, that, the, the sheet music that was actually given to the performers right. to use, you know, as a guide. Yeah. And I have everyone, uh, the only people I don't have it on are Daryl Hall and John Oates. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to sell it on eBay. I'll make sure we, uh, we sign it first. <laughs> But it's supposed to be very valuable. Some some collector. No, did you say it was like fifty thousand dollars? No, more than that. Some collector met me backstage. He was a he was a collector of, of memorabilia, yeah. everything from sports to music, and he started saying, "Well, you must have some incredible stuff over the years." And I said, "Yeah, I've got some things." He goes, "What do you have?" You know, and yeah. I started just telling. And I mentioned this. He said, "You have what?" Yeah. And he goes, "That's worth like in the six figures." Yeah, oh, to, the right, much. to the right person, that's what he said. Well, I really fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> did anybody try and turn you down that day? Did no, everyone was doing it. Right, everyone was doing it. No, everyone was doing it. Everyone was just kind of walking around with their paper. Hey, would you sign? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. You know. And who were you most proud to get that day? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I all I know is I stood behind Ray Charles, which I uh, thought was really yeah. cool because he was making the funniest comments. Yeah, he's the joker of the he whole He was the best. He kept everybody down to earth because he wasn't taking any shit from anybody. Yeah, yeah. And when everybody started, and anybody started getting a little uppity, he was just like, <laughs> oh, by the way, I'm here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah that was pretty cool. 
Um, can you tell us where, where and when you were born? I was born in New York City um, in 1948, and uh, I moved very shortly. When I was four years old, my family moved to Pennsylvania, about 25 miles north of Philadelphia. So I grew up kind of in the, it was the country then, it's the suburbs now. But it was the country, but we were very close to the city, so I always gravitated toward the city. And as soon as I got old enough in high school, I started going to the city every weekend and eventually moved there, and that's when I met Daryl. Roughly, where do you live now? I, roughly, I live, in, well, I live in one firm place. I have one house, and I live in uh, Aspen, Colorado, right in the middle of the mountains. Yeah. yeah, I'm a skier, an outdoorsman. I like all the mountain stuff, you know, mountain biking, yeah. hiking, climbing, all that. I do yeah. all that. We have a little farm with lots of animals. Where do you keep your record collection? Uh, I don't have much of a record collection. I gave up my record collection many years ago, my vinyl anyway. I transferred everything that I thought was important to DAT, tape, and I'd have a, a, I have a fairly large collection of CDs, but it... I'm not a music uh, listener. I don't listen for pleasure. I listen for information. Right, like so, yeah, so I don't tend to uh, play music. In fact, it's too distracting for me. I have to listen to it. I can't really do anything else and have music on. Do you remember the first record you ever bought, though? I, it was probably a Chuck Berry record because I, you know, as a kid, I started playing guitar at five and singing even before that. And I wanted, you know, and I was always gravitated toward people who accompanied themselves on guitar. And in those days, it was Elvis and Chuck Berry. Mm. So I started. I always sang those those type songs. And I think it was Little Queenie or one of those records. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How do you think your taste in music compares to Daryl's? Oh, I think we're we're very very similar. We we were weaned and grew up on a certain kind of music. It was the music that was in the air, in the area we lived in. It was the music that was on the radio. It was doo-wop singing. Uh, it was um, soul music, and that's the music of Philadelphia. And it you know it, it shaped everything we do. So. I think uh, Daryl and I are very distinctly different as people mm. in our a lot of in our interests outside of music, but it's the music that that really uh, keeps us. That's the glue that, that yeah. keeps us together because we have such a common uh, language. We have a common musical history and a common musical language that we can draw from, and we know exactly what each other are mm. thinking about and doing, and our references are all the same because mm. we grew up with the same thing. How difficult did you find it narrowing this down to five albums? It was a little bit difficult, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I just had to go for it, you know, and I'm sure I missed a lot of things, but I, you know, I did, did the ones that popped into my head the quickest is the ones that I... What would be uh, your favorite of, of those five? Uh, this one, Temptations Live, I'll start right off the bat. Uh, Temptations were, um, were my heroes. When I was a kid, it was, uh, they, they were, they epitomized everything that was right about singing, dressing, dancing, performing. Um, they they had class. They had style. They had, uh, I mean, even even the fact that they were all the same height, it was it was just kind of a, this this perfect group to me. It was so iconic. I mean, you know they you know it was like a, a thing when they when they did a dance step. You know, each each one of their heels was three inches off the ground. You know, it was it was perfection personified, mm. and their harmonies were 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 just perfect. I mean, you know, you have you had a, a five part vocal group with a bass singer who was an actual singer. In those days, a lot of uh, doo wop bands had bass singers, but they were only guys who happened to be able to sing low. Uh, the, he could actually sing. Melvin Franklin could actually sing, mm. and they were the greatest singers. And you know, with lead singers like Eddie Kendrick and David Ruffin, and I'm talking about the original group, of course. Mm. And then you had, uh, you know, and, and just everything about them was perfect. And when Daryl and I met, our lo our mutual love of the Temptations and Daryl's connection to the Temptations through his original band was the thing that brought us together, because we all knew the same songs. Favorite tracks on that? Uh, it's growing. Um, I think is one of one of the great ones uh, because it was a, it wasn't one of their big hits, of mm. course. You know, and all their big hits. You know, My Girl and Ain't Too Proud to Beg. But that's the obvious stuff. You know, Smokey wrote for them, mm. and having Smokey Robinson as as your um, 
muse, songwriting, you know, originator, and having the quality of this kind of vocals, it doesn't get any better. Mm. Okay, your number two choice, please. Oh boy. Okay. Well, let me stray from the world of soul into the world of uh, Saskatchewan soul, um, Canadian soul. Right. Joni Mitchell Blue. Right. Uh, it's one of the most complete albums I've ever heard. Everything about the album is perfect. Um, her mood that she establishes in the beginning just, just you know, is sustained through the entire album. The songwriting as a craft is, is, is unsurpassed. Uh, her lyrics are innovative, creative, feminine. Um, everything that's good about a songwriter, she, she embodies in this record. She tells stories and paints pictures. I mean, she's an artist in, in more ways than one. And, and obviously through the years, people you know, know that. But she painted pictures on this record that were so evocative to me as a songwriter that regardless of, of the style, I was just blown away. I, I listened to this album over and over and over mm. again, and I just couldn't get enough of it. And uh, the Did song for... Uh, I'm, oh, yeah, we, we met. Yeah. What's she like? Exactly like you think. Kind of, well, when I met her, you know, in the 70s, she was very... Uh, she was kind of like a flower child, or art, artist, mm. artistic personality, very um, free and very head, head in the clouds. Whimsical. Yeah, whimsical. Just like you, you would think, I think. Mm. I didn't know her that well, so I can't mm. say she had her dark side. I'm sure she did. But <laughs> um, the song for free, in particular, I think it just it just captures the the spirit of uh, of the singer songwriter of the '70s. You know that that there she was. You know, I slept last night in a good hotel. You know, and, and all this stuff. But but he was out there. You know singing for free on the street corner you know I think the, the dichotomy of being famous and the dichotomy of being uh, you know revered probably pulled at her uh, artistic essence that made her want to do it for the real reasons mm. that she wanted to do it and I think that that really comes across in that song. Brilliant okay your third choice please. Okay we'll stay in the realm of the uh, Americana here the band Again, probably one of the most complete, perfect albums ever made. Mm -hmm. Everything, the, the, the mood is sustained from the beginning to the end. Every song, you know, they, they went for this kind of neo-Civil War, turn of the century. They tried to, they, everything, even from the picture to the way they looked, the songwriting has, has this, uh, this historical American perspective. It has a lot to do with the Civil War, and, and evidently Robbie Robertson and, and, the, and the rest of the guys, they were trying to capture something, but they did it in a kind of a modern way, but they, they, it was almost like they, they weren't really of this time. It was